Good morning, everyone, um, and welcome to another episode of 100 Days and Beyond podcast where we speak to the mergers and acquisitions, the people behind the scenes of post-merger integrations. Our, our main topic across the board for this uh, podcast is, is, is really based on, the, on those special people, those unique uh, individuals that have made careers around the um, the space that 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 makes such a significant difference to businesses out there in in the market, especially once mergers and acquisitions and those things that have taken place. When we when we look at um, at at different individuals uh, coming online and coming onto the podcast today, we got a really really special um, individual, um, Kevin Kevin Murphy. Um, I see he's gone off screen and i'm hoping that we can get him back online again we're having one or two technical difficulties this morning so i'm going to just quickly go into into his bio uh you would have seen on the on the events um uh on the event calendar that he is a fascinating individual so kevin let me just quickly um uh, run through some uh, instances of his bio and then i'm going to bring him online hopefully he can come back uh, into the into the podcast. Okay, great. So Kevin Kevin has has spent his entire career in financial services, uh, and really financial services um, as as an industry uh, around um, what is really unique and special in that space is the payments uh, business, and payments as a as a business or, not, or a sector or a subsector of financial services. I think it's fascinating. Uh, the payments industry, I mean, we go all the way back to things like like PayPal and other, other types of um, businesses within that sector, how things have changed and things have changed significantly in this space. Um, Kevin is, is, has really had a magnificent career in this space. He's been CEO of a number of uh, payments businesses internationally. Um, there's, I'm just going to name a few sort of Bank of Ireland cards and loans, issuing and acquiring, foreign currency exchange, um, Avancard. Um, this is a sort of card issuing and lending, which is owned by Apollo Global, uh, Crosscard, DAC, and so on. But I think Kevin is really the best person to 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 get to to run through this fascinating industry, payments. As a, as a sector is just phenomenal, and there's so much going on, and within the post-merger integration space, within M&A, and within, um, I would say, the backbone of many, many businesses, without this industry, without this subsector, um, many businesses would not be able to, to collect money, to transact, and so on, especially in, in today's world where we're having less and less cash and more global-based uh, transactions. Welcome, uh, Kevin, and, and welcome. So I really do appreciate you coming online today, sharing your massive experience. Uh, welcome and good morning. Thanks, Dudley. Good morning. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Yeah, we're really looking forward to the show. And uh, maybe just start. I mean, give us give us a bit of background. I mean, you've got a, a really good, uh, I mean, I'm fascinating by uh, and uh, and having chosen so early in your career to be in the payment sector, I think has made you, after a number of years, a, 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 a significant player and specialist in this space. So give us your journey. Tell us how you got into it and, 
and what what really gets you up in the morning in terms of getting getting to to work in this space yeah sure thanks dudley so um all my life i've been in financial services and probably the last 20 years or so have mostly focused on payments and it wasn't particularly a deliberate strategy but it was more a happen chance of events and then about 10 years ago i made it a very deliberate career strategy which i'll talk about so as i said I, irish originally uh, now living in London, but I've worked internationally in the financial services sector. And probably the first 20 years of my career were in what I'd call blue chip, large financial services, particularly in mm -hmm. Bank of Ireland Group, which was a fantastic organization to work for and still is, and gives people um, great training, great understanding of how businesses operate, uh, critical items like government, governance, program management, etc. And then about 10 years ago, I took a decision that with the downsizing going on in banks and having had a number of payments roles in large banking organizations and having had some exposure to private equity businesses that I wanted to specifically focus on being a CEO in payments businesses, ideally owned by private equity or private um, shareholders. And the reason for that was <clears throat> probably early 2010, 2011, I had the opportunity to go and basically sell a business on behalf of the bank in the States, foreign currency exchange, great cash wholesaling business, making super profits. And I saw some of the private equity companies that were operating and looking to buy this business. And it opened my eyes to a different business model than the big, large corporate PLC. And particularly at the time, it was uh, it appeared more dynamic. And they had more interesting businesses. They made decisions faster, more lucrative, and, and generally more interesting. So when I left Bank of Ireland, I had a very clear strategy around operating in in payments businesses, ideally as CEO across Europe for PE mm -hmm. and for private uh, shareholders. And that's effectively what I've done for the past 10 years. I've had a number of roles as CEO or chairman, executive chairman. And then when I'm not in a role, what I try and do is advise PE companies on either potential acquisitions or on uh, portfolio companies that need, um, uh, a res uh, need support. And, yeah. Uh, so that, I mean, sorry, Dudley. No, no, no. That's fascinating. I'd, I'd want you to expand to expand a bit on the on the CEO and leadership role, if you if you don't mind. Um, I think that is that 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 is fascinating, and in such a fast moving in, in environment. Apologies, I interrupted you there. You had you were finishing your thought. No, no problem. So yeah, very happy to talk about that. And it's been quite an interesting. Uh, Facet. So if I go back to my first MD role within the Bank of Ireland group, so large organization, I, uh, I was fortunate at a reasonably young age to be given the responsibility to run the cards and loans business, which was card issuing and acquiring three schemes, Ireland and an emerging business in the UK. And did that for about five years and thoroughly enjoyed it and uh, enabled me to uh, firstly, develop further my own leadership skills as an MD in a large organization, uh, but also build, start building my network, particularly in the UK in the payments world, because the Irish market is quite small. But that business, while it was a large business in the Irish cards business, 
uh, had the opportunity to grow and develop a, a new business uh, through a partnership in the UK. So that gave me the opportunity to expand mm. out. I was fortunate enough to spend a lot of time with MasterCard and Visa and Amex internationally. Uh, and that opened my eyes to a payments world that really I hadn't seen before. And as an MD of that business, you know, that business when I took it over had about 750 people in it. Uh, it was quite challenged. And that has become a theme through my leadership roles over the past 15 or so years, which is not necessarily by design, but the way it's worked out has been taking on pretty challenged businesses that have, you know, fairly serious issues. So they're not smooth and flying at 20, 30, 40 percent year on your growth. They've actually got significant challenges that need to be addressed, whether they're technical or regulatory or people or operations and so each of the businesses that i've been involved in um, and it's become a bit of a specialism now i think at this stage has been pretty troubled uh, and i could talk about each of them in due course but they've all I've, I've yet to have the luxury of taking on a really smooth slick high growth business <laughs> that you just sit back and let it roll but actually the fun i think in many ways is actually and you mentioned what gets me gets me out of bed the fun in these businesses is going into a trouble situation, uh, assessing the landscape and the business and the issues in front of it, and then putting in place with colleagues the plans, the strategies to sort the business out, stabilize it, and put it onto a growth path or sell it, as the case may be for private equity. And typically, uh, what I've learned over the past, I suppose, 15 years is from my experience in a large corporate where decision making was slow probably actually didn't really make any decisions because they were all made by committee or by groups group um, stakeholders to now working in fintech for private equity where basically decisions are very fast uh, my last role as chairman and ceo of crossguard in europe which was a really interesting carve out business effectively huge autonomy from the shareholders to get on and carve out the business and stabilize it and get it up for sale so i really like the pace and speed that operates now in the fintech world it challenges you as a leader because effectively Effectively, there's nowhere to hide. You're not sitting behind a huge group structure. Uh, but the, the great benefit of doing that is you can make decisions and move things quickly and uh, inject momentum into a business uh, and uh, get pace and start getting the business moving in the right direction. So it's a very different leadership style that I've had to evolve over the past 15 years. Uh, and even as I've gone through my career journey, I found myself having to step back and decide is my leadership style appropriate so if i think about starting with a big blue chip organization then mid what i'd call mid-market pe to now fintech fast-paced it does require a change in, in approach a change in your decision making uh, process a change in your own leadership style and also your communication style but i find that fascinating and it's, it's one of the things that i really enjoy is the challenge around the accountability with a small group of colleagues for taking a business that uh, is I think we lo we're losing Kevin. Uh, I'm just, um, oh, there we go. We just lost you there for a moment, Kevin. Um, just repeat that last 30 seconds for us, if you if you don't mind. Uh, we, we lost your, your signal Sorry, there. Briefly. That, yeah, no problem. Just 
briefly saying that what I really enjoy now is the speed and pace of decision making mm. and the accountability of taking on an, a business with some colleagues and moving it into a much better place over a period of time. And, and it's a very different business model and leadership style required than in large corporates. But it's to me, it's, it's faster paced and it's more exciting. Yeah, and I think I think just a, as a as a comment and um, as someone that that watches the often the 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 legacy financial uh, services industry, if you like, with the banks and and so on, because of their sheer size, often the decision making can be rather cumbersome and 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 really difficult. And and then you get into smaller, more agile organizations, organizations that are in faster paced newer uh, um, I don't about newer but but where technologies are being adopted a lot quicker um, I, I just what really stood out for me is in in your leadership style and I just want to sort of narrow that down a little bit further is you have certain certain key things that 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 that, that you mentioned in in your profile and I thought that's fascinating I mean besides having the, uh, what you call value-driven sort of passion, transformation, empathy, and integrity, I mean, which are really brilliant in terms of values. If we look at uh, at, at sort of motto values and so on, I mean, you talk about st strategy, plan, team, and making of decisions. And I think that comes up again. You, know, you talk about strategy, get to know where you're aiming for, even if it's a simple 12-month plan. And you and and you talk about then again um, understanding because of I mean you you talk about gray hairs and sometimes there's a there seems to be a negative connotivity to those with gray hair but I think there comes a a, a massive benefit about having that vast amount of experience across um, multiple facets you know having seen the transformation. I think it's brilliant and uh, I mean addressing underperformance. You talk about decisions make them fast and then inject momentum. I think that is, I mean, those are those are really, really good ways that leaders could could take businesses forward. But one thing that, that does stand out for me and what you've just said now, and and that is you've had to adapt yourself. You know, that you had to yourself transform in in the way that 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 you've had to do things. So you went, you came into the industry with you know being trained and so on and within a good uh, banking environment but but then again as times have changed we all have to adapt and i think that's the sign of a of a really of a true leader obviously things like clear communication um even through good and bad times etc i mean those are all key things but to just talk around that whole leadership your personal you know your own internal transformation that you had to, you had to embark on because it's easy to look out, but it's often not so easy to look in and say, "Okay, I, I better, I better do something," <laughs> and uh, and adapt. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm really, I really enjoy your values, your motto, and then that sort of, even if it's a simple twelve-month plan, get the decisions made through good and bad. Let's just tackle it and, and get on with it. So, it appears to me you're the kind of guy that uh, uh, that that takes. You know, it takes the bull by the horns, if you like, um, and, and carry on. I think Kevin's having a, a, a few technical issues, but we'll come back to to, to Kevin now. Um, so as soon as Kevin comes back online, there we go. He's back online. We're going to get, um, we're going to just get a little bit more info around. Let's talk about that leadership style and the personal, and then obviously your own your your, your transformation as you're going in nine to fintech and 
and so on. Uh, tell us a little about that, Kevin. Yeah, I'm very happy to. So I think when you work in large corporates, and uh, certainly is my experience and great experience in the early part of my career, you learn a lot around governance and collective decision making, etc. But you know, when I look back on my time as uh, MD in Bank of Ireland's cards business, I, I kind of wonder did I really any ever make any decisions on my own because you're part of a much larger group. You've got a whole set of stakeholders within the organization that you have to align with. You know, there's you spend most of your time in steering committees. So you very rarely, I think, actually make a significant material decision on your own. Uh, that was brought home to me very quickly when I moved into my first private equity business. And within the first two weeks, I realized we had a significant um, IT undercharging and overcharging issue. And I rang the partner in London and the PE company. And I said, look, we're going to have to spend about 200 grand. Uh, we're going to have to get in some consultants. We're going to have to sort this out very quickly. And he said, that's fine. And I said, okay, well, will I set up a meeting? Will I do a presentation? Will I send you a memo? And he, there was a pause on the phone and he just said, no, no, Kevin, I said, it's fine. So it was a real <laughs> home moment, which is the world I lived in to make a decision and spend at the time 200 grand, which was a lot of money, would require presentations and governance and steering, et cetera. Whereas now it was PE, it was a phone call and it was like a one minute conversation and it was implicit trust in me as the CEO of the business. Obviously I'm accountable and the decision was made. And I remember sitting back and thinking, wow, this is really a different world that I've entered. And this is what I wanted to get into. And that has been the theme that I've seen through PE companies. You know, maybe not quite always as quick as that in decision making, but decisions are made really quickly. So then to come back to your question, what that forces you to do as a leader is to step up and actually get comfortable with making decisions quickly, maybe not with perfect information, and um, maybe they're they're gonna be wrong, uh, but at least that you are injecting momentum into the business and moving things forward. So that's one thing I, I, I really like, and it's forced me to change my decision-making style. And it puts you out there in terms of, you know, if you're the chairman and CEO of a business, and you make the decision, well, then you're accountable for it. But you touched on in your introduction, you know, the gray hair syndrome, and, and I'm a huge advocate of surrounding myself with people that are super experienced in the payments industry, the banking world, who can support me in the decisions that I take, and frequently will challenge me and tell me I'm wrong, and then we get to a better decision. So the last two businesses that I've gone into as CEO, there were some good people in the business, but it was clear that we also needed to bring in experienced people. And I'm very lucky that I have a network of great colleagues who've been around the banking and payments world for 30 years as well. And Basically, they've seen it all. So there's nothing they're going to come across, Dudley, that will phase them that they haven't seen in some shape or form. And they know the processes and the tools and techniques to sit down and work it out, whether it's a regulatory issue or a people issue or a, a tech issue or a, a new business issue. And that is very important. And so the last business I was in, in, in Germany, in Luxembourg, had some really great young people in the business that came with the business and are still there and are, are going to be super professionals. But what they needed as well was a couple of people who'd been around the block, mm 
So who had done card migrations, dealt with major regulatory issues, done significant technical carve-outs, uh, done major transformation projects. And so by being able to bring in those colleagues into the business pretty quickly and having the autonomy to do it from the shareholders meant that we could get on and address issues that had been hanging around for a while and actually get them done and sorted. And so that is part of the toolkit I've found in terms of you know, me moving from working in a big corporate to working in a fintech business, which is pretty fast-paced and um, agile in terms of decision-making, is having a really good team around you. And I, and I talk in, in my, my, my blogs around, you know, being a CEO is actually really easy, just to simplify it. You make a plan, you get a team, and you make decisions. And so the plan is either a fantastic three or four or five year strategy where you're going to conquer the world, or maybe it's just a plan for the year that you're in because you don't know what the strategy is going to be. And that was certainly the case in the last business we were in. It was a one year plan, which is with some significant deliverables to achieve by the end of the year. We called it a year of transformation and we pretty much nailed them without necessarily knowing where we were going to get to in three to five years. But we had some immediate issues that needed to be resolved. So you have to have a plan, whether it's the three year strategy or whether it's the survival plan for the year or it's the transformation plan. You have to have a plan and then you have to have the team around you that that can execute the plan. And ideally a mix of, you know, younger people who are progressing in their career, but also a few people who you can really lean on and who can bring super experience and expertise. You know, my 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 COO in my last business is a really good friend of mine, John. John won't mind me saying John is 65. You know, he's not looking for a career, but what he's really interested in is doing interesting work, learning new things. Uh, and he's got 40 years of banking experience and operations experience that I can rely on. And I would trust John 100%. And so the mix of people with the gray hairs and also the younger people who know the business and the market is hugely powerful. So that's the second thing is get the team in place mm. and do it quickly. So I've learned this again over the years. If I go back 10 or 15 years ago, I would probably have been slow to move people, to address underperformance, to... Um, deal with issues now to be honest i don't hesitate i trust my gut that's basically a way of saying i have a lot of experience and i've got colleagues around me who have also a lot of experience and so i try now and deal with issues very quickly whether that's a people issue or a tech issue or a regulatory issue there is no point leaving landmines in the ground that are going to explode in a week or a month or three months dig them up and get them out of the way. And so uh, the team is hugely important. And then thirdly, it's about making decisions. And certainly I've learned from moving from big corporate to now fintech, you don't necessarily have all the information you would have had if you had a big corporate organization. But what's critical to me is you start making decisions and you inject pace and momentum into a business. All your decisions won't be right, but frequently if you find out it's not exactly right, there's time to adjust uh, uh, later on as you go along.
One of the challenges I found in smaller organizations is actually getting the decision positioned. So getting people to understand that, yes, we're here to make decisions. We're here to move things forward. And now you need to bring the decisions to us or we need to go and find them and work them out. And by bringing in colleagues who were experienced in you know, transformation, regulatory, tech, and who are experts in that space, it just means that we can dig up the, those landmines and get to the issues mm -hmm. that need to be decided on. So to me, it's around, you know, having a plan either a strategy or a one-year plan getting a team fast in place around you don't hesitate uh, trust your gut if you think somebody is in the wrong space don't wait six months mm -hmm. to find if you were right you know trust your gut and then start making decisions and move them forward and it's interesting you, you mentioned agile and i have to be honest i'm a bit of a skeptic around a lot of the talk that you hear about agile organizations, etc., uh, frequently from what I've seen, both in terms of advisory work and intern work, and also CEO, agile is code for chaotic. So uh, <laughs> chaotic does not work in business. And so, you know, if you want to get from A to B, you've got to have a, a plan. It may not be fully detailed, but you know, I, I'm not a fan of let's just try it and see and see where we go and we might eventually get there. You've got to have some structure. You've got to have some organization. Mm -hmm. You've got to have people knowing where they're going. So it was certainly a point I, I've debated at length with some colleagues over the past couple of years around agile organizations. Sure, if you're building a new product from scratch and you've got 100 million of somebody else's money to blow, yeah, sure, have fun being agile. But, you know, if you're <laughs> to drive a real business to deliver a profit and a return mm. to shareholders, Agile only works so far. Uh, and particularly when you're doing, I found, pretty large and significant technical changes. You're doing a card migration or you're doing a carve out mm. or you want to build a new product. Agile is not the response. Uh, you need structure. You need organization. That doesn't mean you're going to be slow, but it does mean that everybody who's on the plan knows where we're going. And so I'm not a huge fan of that. And I think, you know, there, there's a bit of um, a bit of a reckoning coming into the fintech world now over the next year or two. And I think that's probably not necessarily a bad thing because there was probably too much easy money floating around, money which wasn't focused on delivering on the bottom line. And so I think we're going to see over the next year or two quite a bit of consolidation. And I suspect we'll see some really good business practices come home that have been missing in some of these businesses, like making a profit. It's not a dirty word. It's okay. Um, you know, having a structure and a plan and a, being organized, you know, running a, a, an appropriately regulated compliant business. Mm. Um, and we can maybe talk about that in a moment, some of the Wild West stuff that we're seeing in payments. <laughs> but you know, we, we operate, and particularly when we're a CEO or a chairman, mm. we're the regulated party we have a huge amount of responsibility each of the four businesses that i've led i've been the regulated person as the ceo or the chairman who's had to face off to the regulator you know and this is serious stuff this is uh, you're dealing with significant volumes of customer funds you're dealing with regulations and rules that are there to protect the industry and society from uh, money laundering criminal activities etc and they need to be paid attention to um, and I, I look around at the moment and I see some fintechs that are churning through compliance professionals. And what it just says to me is that the culture in those organizations is not right. So, mm. yes, they may be worth a billion or three, but that doesn't mean that they're running an appropriate business. And I think particularly 
if you look at the crypto space, we're seeing a lot of car crashes and we will see more over the next year or two. So, you know, back to my decision making, you know, I run regulated businesses. I'm comfortable mm. in that. But that means you run the business in an appropriate and proper way. And you have to have standards, structures and all that kind of good stuff. But yet you can still be fast in your decision making and you can inject momentum and you can move business forward at pace, but you do it appropriately. I like that. That that's that makes huge sense. I mean, let, let's let's go into some of those um, uh, some of those case studies. I think you mentioned uh, some uh, a, a few mistakes uh, along the way, which we all <laughs> we all tend to do. But um, let's look at some of the case studies. Uh, I mean, because this is the show is all about uh, post merger integration work and and especially the merger into uh, merger acquisition uh, uh, elements. What, what really uh, fascinates me is is your point of view as a CEO, as a leader, as a, as, as a, as a chair, um, as someone driving the business, as someone taking accountability, responsibility um, for decisions, making sure that they are implemented, building a team around you and then getting, getting the work done um, is different to a practitioner who, who comes in and does uh, sort of PMI or post-merger integration work, or is different to, let's say, someone on the receiving end. I mean, you've done an acquisition. If I look at at, at, at one of your case studies, you're talking about an Irish uh, card issuing and acquiring uh, business that's, that went out and acquired six businesses to be integrated into one a uh, major, major card migration program was required, alignment with a group operating model, building a leadership team, launching a UK cards business and uh, and major capital expenditure programs. I mean, that's six businesses into one is already a big, <laughs> it's a huge, huge job. Um, you're talking about alignment of, uh, I mean, you talk about major card migration program required. So, I mean, that that in itself, I mean, that must have involved things like systems and processes and people and 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 even I would imagine a lot of ingrained habits, culture, um, things that that were. This is the way we we did it, and you know, why are you coming to change it? And now you got six businesses all at that sort of. Uh, loggerheads if you like i mean how, how do you steer that the, the ship through those uh, stormy waters i mean tell us a bit about that yeah it's um it's a really interesting challenge and um one of the key things and uh, i i try and practice this literally every day when i'm ceo is communication and it's communication around um where the business is trying to get to as I said earlier, either this year or over the course of three years. And then what are the issues that we need to address to move us forward? And, you know, I, I'm, I'm amused sometimes when I sit in on, as an observer and advisor on all hands with uh, other CEOs, and they do an all hands meeting and then they do their presentation for 20 minutes or an hour, and then they don't take any questions and they close down the meeting. And I've seen this even again this year. And I'm thinking, that's not communication. That's just, you could have sent that in an email. So communication means engaging with people, whether it's in an all hands or whether it's at a round table lunch meeting or whether it's walking the floor on one-to-ones and taking questions. And I'm, I'm a huge believer, if you're the CEO of the business, 
you have got to take unprompted questions and deal with them from colleagues in the business because they're the people who are doing the 40 or 50 hours a week. They know frequently the issues in the business and what needs to be addressed, and they deserve and are due a CEO that will tell them honestly what's going on in the business. And I always say to colleagues when I'm taking questions, look, uh, if I can answer the question honestly, I will, I'll do it. If I don't know the answer, I'll go and find out and I'll come back to you. And then occasionally there'll be some questions that I can't answer because it's confidential. And I'll just tell you that. And you just have to respect that. So um, dealing with like integration of large businesses, as you touched on, or you know, more recently in the last couple of years, dealing with a business which uh, I took on in, in 2014 in the Irish market, which was a, a closed business. So effectively a business that was in rundown wasn't open for new business, didn't have a regulatory license, had major IT issues, had some significant people issues. The most important thing was standing in front of the 250 people who worked in the business at the time, and we were all in the office at that stage. And I think being honest with them around the challenges that we faced in the business mm. and saying, look, you know, I know this business is a closed down business. I'm not here at the time. I'm not here to close down a business. I'm here to stabilize and turn around the business, and I'm here to open it up for new business and create a growing, vibrant business. And of course, it's not easy. And then, you know, everything takes longer than you think at the front, and it always costs more. And mm -hmm. costs arrives un unannounced, and revenue is slower to arrive than you expect. So you just accept that um, as part of it, but you communicate. Uh, very regular to, regularly to the teams in the business so that they know what's going on and they can understand either the changes you're making or the projects we're initiating or the or you know why we're making particular decisions i think the other thing to uh, recognize as a ceo particularly in the early stages is uh, when you go into a business and if it's a troubled and turnaround business you've got to get all the issues out up front uh, and, you know, where I've made mistakes in the past is I've been maybe, you know, listening too much to shareholders who didn't want to know all the bad news. You know, <laughs> now I've learned at this stage that, you know, the first three months, you talk about the 100 days, the first three months in a business is about digging up all the landmines and finding the issues that are there and then putting them out on the table. Uh, being as honest and direct as you can be with colleagues, but also with stakeholders in the business, and then saying, well, this is the issue, and that this is the plan for resolving it, and this is what we're going to do about it. No point coming to the table and saying we've got a problem. You've got to come to the table and say we've got a problem, and this is what we're going to do about it. And I think frequently when people in the business look at a CEO, you know, they see the CEO at the top of the triangle in the business and they think, oh, well, you know, it's great. But actually what they don't see is the CEO is also at the bottom of a different triangle. And that triangle has shareholders and stakeholders and regulators, maybe community and maybe industry. And they all need to be managed as well. And that also involves significant time and effort in communication, you know, talking to your advisory board or your uh, non-exec directors, talking to your PE owners and colleagues, you know, talking to the regulator uh, and talking to any other relevant stakeholders so that they know what's going on around the business as well. So to me, a huge part of the job as CEO then becomes communication. And particularly when you go into a turnaround situation, you know, where it's going to be tricky and there are going to be problems, you know, get them out and understood early on, mm. 
put plans in place to deal with them and keep telling people what the progress you're making and the issues you're finding and addressing. So I've been very lucky if I go back to that business that I took over in 2014, you know, within a year to 18 months, we had got two new regulatory licenses for that business. We had stabilized the technology. We put in place a new team to support the existing team that were there. And we opened the business back up for new business and uh, opened it back up into the Irish market. And it's now a very successful uh, card and, and mortgage lender in the Irish market. And while I left after three and a half years, you know, I felt at that stage, my, my, my phase of the role was job. It needed, was done. It needed somebody else to come in and take it on. You know, I'm really proud of the fact that we took a closed business, which was in rundown with no future, to now put it in a position where it was stable. And then we opened it up for growth and got it uh, lending again. And it's now a growing, vibrant business in the Irish market. But that takes time and effort. And I think sometimes as well, the CEO, when we talk about communication, when we talk about, you know, addressing issues, sometimes the, the CEO has to stand on his or her principles um, and tell the PE owners, the private equity owners, or the shareholders that their brilliant idea that they've dreamed up in London in their lovely office is wrong and ain't going to work. And so there's a, an element of you know, backbone and bravery required as well for a CEO when he or she is communicating. You know, not all the ideas that come from the private equity guys are um, good. And therefore, you need to just push back appropriately. I can think of two particular ideas, one which was um, that we should open up a lending business for solar panels in the Irish market. Um, anybody who knows the Irish market really well knows the sun doesn't shine very often. So solar panels, while they're now emerging, um, was not a business that we wanted to be in. So you need to push back on some of the harebrained ideas that might come up from the PE guys. And, and the PE guys, you know, they're great and they're seriously intelligent people. And I've learned a huge amount working with them. But, you know, they, they, they're they not used to running businesses. And that's quite different. And so sometimes some of their ideas, particularly around financial engineering and mm. balance management, are absolutely brilliant. And I, I've certainly learned how to make money much, much faster from listening to them. But some of their ideas about integration of businesses and technology uh, and, uh, you know, how to organize growth, they're not grounded in actually what's going to work in your market. And with the best respect and the greatest respect to them, you've got to push back and challenge and maybe tell them that's not going to work. And here's a better strategy for the business that uh, you happen to be running. So, you know, that takes an element of a CEO with experience and who's comfortable having the challenge back to mm -hmm. the uh, PE guys. Now, ideally, it'd be great if you're all on the one page, but that doesn't always happen. And so, you know, many ways for me, communication is one of the key things as a CEO. We talk about the first 100 days, but once you get past the 100 days and you're into the first year, the second year, that communication to colleagues and stakeholders and then also to your shareholders and board, hugely, hugely important. Um, you know, and I could I could point to other uh, mistakes I've made in the past uh, on my career, as everybody else has. But what I try and do is, once I recognize it, just make sure it doesn't happen again.
So yes. you know, I learned that, you know, that everybody thinks their child is beautiful. You don't want to be the person to have to tell them that it, the you know the business is looking a bit ugly at the minute, but you got to do it. And I had experience with doing that this year, where I had to go to private equity owners of the business and say, "Guys, there are serious problems here. I know you don't see it yet, but I'm telling you what the problems are, and I'm telling you roughly what I think you need to do about it." I've had to do that now for the last two or three businesses that I've operated in, gone in, done the 100-day assessment in conjunction with some colleagues, lifted the rocks, find the issues, which are typically worse than you've been told before you walk in the door, but that's mm -hmm. fine. You know what to expect. And then say, okay, now we have these issues. This is how we're going to put a plan in place to do and this is particularly important, Dudley, in the payments world when we're dealing with regulated businesses and regulated entities. And, mm. um, you know, I touched on it earlier. This this is serious stuff. And now with the new accountability regimes coming into place, you know, senior executives and chairman and chief executives are being held personally accountable for the operation and conduct of their businesses. And I think that's right. But it puts a greater onus on regulated people in the business to make sure that they know what's going on in the business, that they have the right tools and techniques and processes and procedures um, to make the business work effectively. And, you know, when we think about fintech, um, there's a huge amount of focus on the tech side and there's some fantastic mm. tech out there. But it's called fintech for a reason. And I think there needs to be more focus on some of the financial management, the regulatory management, the accountability for compliance, and all that, inverted commas, boring stuff, which is critically important to making sure a technology play works really well. And so yeah. that fintech world, as we said, is going to have a shakeout in the next year or two. I think we will see some really good businesses come through. But to be honest, some of the businesses that are too focused on tech and are not enough focused on running a proper business are going to uh, end up in serious trouble. Yeah, I think I think those days of um, <clears throat> of running a business and and uh, and seeing how long you can run, you can burn the cash until your next funding round. I think are coming to an end. Uh, you actually have to start making money as quick as possible, or starting making a return on investment. Um, just I want to touch on two, just two other quick ones before we come to the end, because we we come into the end of the of the hour, and it's been fascinating listening to to such an experienced guy, Kevin. Thank you, thank you for that. There's two things there, and, and I just the one is uh, for me is you had to get a business ready for sale, which is which is the one one of your your sort of case studies, and and on the other side is. Is is your carve out and and there's one comment that that was quite interesting for me was um, a carve out is hard. <laughs> so so just to sort of I'm, let's say you're on the receiving end. I mean you uh, you need to sell the business. Um, the business is not being sold uh, from from what I can gather. You go in there. And nobody wants to buy it. Falls flat at the DD stage every time. Every time, but now you are being tasked with offloading the business. That's number one. Number two is is on the carve out side. Is saying, you know, we need to carve something out. We need to make make it work. You know, I know they're probably polar opposite, but if you could sort of bring together a few of the lessons learned in that, and then I want to come to to just a, a, 
a, a brief rundown on, on some of the, your methodology, because I'm sure the audience wants to know sort of what is that sort of secret sauce that you have that, that make things work. So let's quickly touch on the, the carve outs yeah. and getting ready for sale. And then I want to go into your methodologies. Yeah, thanks. So I've been fortunate that I've, I think I've sold six or seven significant businesses over the past 15 years. And of course, you've got teams of advisors and um, whether they're colleagues or external advisors supporting the sale. Uh, and you've got to go through the sale process and, and um, do the round in terms of finding the uh, potential buyers. I think to do a sale, you've got to know the business intimately. And for me, one of the most critical things is that you have a CFO who's sitting at your shoulder, who also knows the business intimately. And I've been very fortunate. I've worked with two particularly strong CFOs in my past um, 10 or 15 years. And, and one of them, we've worked in a number of businesses together, you know, and I would trust him implicitly. But, you know, you only bring a business to sale once you've spent a reasonable amount of time, and that's 12 or 18 or 24 months, understanding what's in the business, getting to grips with it, dealing with the legacy issues, uh, stabilizing it, putting it onto the right platform, whether it's uh, growth or whether it's um, business as usual, and then bringing it to a sale. You know, and when you go and put yourself in front of PE companies and you want to put your business up for sale, you know, it's a fascinating exam examination of how well do you really know your business? Because as I said earlier, these guys are smart. They ask intelligent questions. They read between the lines and you've got to be on point. And so for me, it's around you've got to have as a CEO, not just a high level understanding of your business. You need to know the detail of your business, your tech, your reg, your your financials. And that comes from having your hands on the business uh, for a year or two before you bring it to sale. And as I said, having a CFO at your side that you can trust and who you know will won't drop the ball. So to me in-depth understanding of the business and being able to articulate where the business is going and what somebody mm. can do with it, critically important. Um, I mentioned Carve-Out as well as, as part of our conversation. And uh, there's a couple of things in my career that uh, I hope never again to do, but I probably will. So one is a major card migration, which is described as like having open heart surgery when you're trying to run a carve out isn't far behind it so basically you're trying to run a business you're trying to put it on a stable platform but you're trying to separate it out from a, a larger entity uh, and it's very tricky and it's very tricky from a tech perspective but also from the perspective of engaging with the parent company who to be honest probably wants you out as soon as possible you're a bit of a pain to them they just want you gone uh, so that they can close off whatever project or issue they have and then send you on their way. <clears throat> and my experience of doing carve-outs, I've done two of them at, at this stage in my career, is they take longer than you think. They're more technically challenging than you expect. Um, people issues are thrown up uh, regularly. Um, and it's a super challenge. And you need to have a very structured approach to it. And I talked earlier about bringing in experienced people. Uh, one of the things I've pretty much always done in the business when I've taken it over is early on set up a transformation office. So bring in a senior executive who is specifically accountable 
for working closely with me on the change that's required within the business. Um, and that is a central point for understanding all the low-level change, but also the big-ticket change that you're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. And putting the structures and processes and procedures and governance and reporting, all the non-sexy stuff, but it's hugely important to make sure that you can do a carve And if you're carving out a business you know, with 25 million of revenue, 100 people, at hundreds of thousands of customers from a larger entity, you've got to do it properly because you not only do you have your parent group looking at it, you've got the regulator looking at it and your customers are uh, going to be impacted. So carve-outs are tough. Uh, I'd certainly do them again if I had to, but uh, you know, carve-outs, card migrations, hard yards in the payments world. And that also is why you, know, you need experienced people who've been around this uh, route before to join you as part of the team to accomplish it as well as maybe some of the people in the business who don't have that experience so those two items are really interesting very challenging you know and to be honest if i came up against one of them again while i probably would try and avoid it if we had to take it on of course you'd do it Uh, but now i would know you know i'd know the people i'd want on my team i'd know the the structure as to how we would go about it I'd know how to manage the stakeholders in terms of it's going to take longer, it's going to be tougher, it's going to be more expensive, et cetera. And then you get on and do it and you just do the grind day in, day out. So really interesting in the payments world because we're going to have, I think what we're going to have in the next while is actually quite a lot of consolidation. Hmm. So we're going to have businesses that, you know, to your point, Dudley, are going to start running out of cash, will become available, probably have really good tech, there's some fantastic product propositions out there built on tech, but they haven't got a good business model. And we're going to see some of those probably be consolidated in. And I think there's certainly going to be consolidators in the payments world that are going to look around, and myself included, and say, hey, that's a really good set of tech, and they've got a really good set of customers, and that's got a license, etc. Can we bring that together and make a really interesting business? So it's almost mm-hmm. the opposite of a carve-out. The next phase, I think, is going to be consolidation. Uh, and that's going to be a really interesting phase in the payment space as well. Yeah, because especially tech, what, um, and, I, and I think that uh, comes back to your, uh, and, I, and I think there are many definitions of agile, just um, I suppose we could have a separate uh, episode around uh, agile, but um, I think uh, to serve some people, agile might mean too flexible. And I think fintech uh, in, 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 in its hurry or its rush uh, it's almost like this gold rush in a way. I mean, it's it's. I mean, crypto. I don't understand it. I don't want to understand it at this stage. Blockchain interests me massively, but crypto for me is is still a space that I'm not I'm not 100 sure of. But I mean, we, that's not really fintech. Fintech is if I if I just think about the the the, the rush to fintech and the rush to invest in fintech. I think there's p- potentially there being too many people too eager to invest in what looks like the next tech, but or the next big thing. Or I mean, I think they're calling them unicorns. I think those, those are the kind of words that the people in the on, in the west coast of America in, in Silicon Valley and that call them. But yeah, you know, everyone's looking for that next sort of unicorn. But if I come if I come back to to sort of where fintech has a big problem and i think that's where the, what you're talking about the consolidation is is the product market fit has never really been great because you have tech experts developing really good tech with with limited business knowledge 
and you have really good business people that aren't necessarily tech savvy and, and don't really always understand how all these other things fit together. And then if you can bring those people together and get a product market fit and have the right kind of customer, target customer and that, bringing that sort of magic sort of formula together is almost aligning the stars of the constellation in a way sometimes. But for, uh, FinTech for me is that. And, and I, I think you're absolutely right in terms of, the, of that alignment. If I could then go into sort of your, as a segue into your methodology. I mean, how you get, you get thrown into... Uh, I don't know, the lion's pit, if you like, and you get, you get, okay, well, good luck, Kevin. There's a, there's something there for you. Um, please go and sort that stuff out. Um, okay. What do you, what do you do? Where do you start? What's your methodology? Yeah. It, well, in an ideal world, you'd get a nice uh, two weeks to do due diligence on a business beforehand, much like investors do. But when you're a CEO, that doesn't happen. And so you might get some conversations and you'll have an opportunity to maybe look at some internal reports. But really, you know, you're taking a gamble by taking on a business and it's got to be an educated risk. And, you know, to your to your um, point about crypto, for example, I, I get lots of calls around you know, taking on a crypto business. And personally, I wouldn't touch with a barge pole at the moment. But there are other good businesses there. And when you look at it, you go into a business as a CEO, you know, the first 100 days are critical. There is no time for a honeymoon. So just kill that notion in the first place. You have to hit the ground running day one. Mm. Um, you have to immediately assess the team that are in place. And I mean immediately within the first two to three weeks. Bring in experienced people. I know it's a consistent theme I've talked about through this podcast. Bring in experienced people around you to see and understand what is actually going on in this business. You know, bring them in as consultants or interns. Get them focused on lifting up the stones, understand what's really good about this business and understand the issues that need to be addressed. Find all the issues as fast as possible. So that first 100 days has got to have huge momentum, pace. You've got to blast through the business like a whirlwind. If I go back maybe to my first business, I probably had the luxury of a honeymoon. Now I know going into a business, whether it's an interim or a permanent, the first three months are hugely important in terms of uh, injecting pace, finding out the issues, assessing the people, um, building plans, and communicating very, very strongly to the people in the business and also to the stakeholders. You know, at the end of that three or four months, you'll have a really good idea as to what you're dealing with and how it needs to be dealt with. And then it's about putting in place plans and structures and communicating them with shareholders and colleagues and the regulator if necessary, um, and then executing the plan. And, mm. you know, strategy is 95% about execution. So, <laughs> you know, one of the best CEO I ever worked for had a little uh, thing on his desk that said strategy is 5% inspiration, 95% perspiration. And he was absolutely right. You can have the best strategy in the world, but unless you're prepared to do the grind day in, day out, focus, you know, that's where it's going to happen. So for me, taking on a new business, the first uh, three months, hugely important to get the issues out on the table and understood and clarified. And then it's around putting the plans in place, either for the first six or 12 months, or if you're fortunate enough, having a view as to where you want to get to over the next two to three years. And what's important for that then is the team, the governance, the structures, 
the processes. So I know these are not necessarily, again, the sexy topics that we talk about in fintech, but to your point, Dudley, for that super fantastic tech to be successful as a business, it's got to be managed and led properly, and it's got to fit a customer solution that you can charge money for. There's no point having the most amazing tech built by super intelligent people. If it's not satisfying a customer need and you can't get revenue for it, and then if you don't run the business appropriately. Yeah, I, I, I always smile. I go to some of these um, these events where these young te techpreneurs, I'm not sure what they call them these days, but these young tech guys in their early 20s, um, absolutely, I, I mean, uh, smart beyond, you know, what you can imagine. And, uh, and the business model doesn't stack up. And the tech they're talking about goes so way over anybody's heads that you're not sure how it's actually practically going to be used in the real world. And and it's, it's interesting to have those conversations uh, with them. And I'm and I think that's a I mean that, that's probably what makes part of your job quite exciting and enjoyable. Uh, I want to come. Think, yeah, Kara. No, Kara. If I think about my career coming from traditional banking and now into fintech. You know, I love meeting these guys who, because they're super intelligent. You can learn so much about them and mm. from them in terms of their technology and their product. But what I bring is, okay, now how are we going to make that real? How are we going to make that into a business? Are we going to have people to pay for it? And how are we going to run this as a business that we can grow and develop? Um, and bringing some of practicalities to the table. Yeah, and and I and I think that's that's probably to come back to my first question: what gets you up in the morning? I think if I just see your face light up. When you talk about that as a as something that you enjoy doing, I, I think that's probably it. And I want to maybe just as we as we come to the last few minutes, uh, Kevin, uh, of the episode, tell us a little more about yourself. Um, you know, it is a busy busy environment. Uh, we've just come through a pandemic, but I mean, in your career, you've seen. Uh, 2008, uh, you've seen uh, probably dot-com bubble, if you want to. You've probably seen so many different, let's call it catastrophic events across your career, especially in, in, in your industry. Um, you've seen so much. Uh, t tell us a little bit about, um, you know, regardless of, of all the things, I mean, from a human point of view, how do you keep yourself sort of sane, healthy, focused, uh, that type of thing, and then maybe just uh, to the audience, sort of share a bit. What do you What do you do? I mean, how do they get hold of you? What is your What is your sort of value proposition? What Who do you like to work with? That sort of thing. So, give us yeah. a bit of a flavor of Kevin and uh, and sort of your your value proposition in terms of who you like to work with and how people can contact you. Yeah, thanks very much, Dudley. So yeah, so my my way of operating is when I'm in a business, it's um, 100% commitment to it, whether that's three months or six months or a year or two. I'm a firm believer in in taking my holidays and trying to switch off. I don't believe I've ever um, missed a holiday for work. And uh, I do try and keep a strong work-life balance, even though I do when I'm in role think about the business a huge amount because to be honest that's what i'm being paid for and i really enjoy it and i love you know i love taking on a business that's challenged working with the people and maybe bringing in some new people and putting it onto a growth platform or getting a sale done and then in the downtime when i'm not in a role i i, I make sure that i sharpen the saw as they say in terms of 
spent a lot of time lately looking at crypto just because I haven't had the opportunity to understand it. And I still don't understand it, but I wanted to learn more about it. And, you know, and when I take on the next business, then I know it will be full time um, for months on end. And I really enjoy that. And, you know, what I'm uh, what I my career is all about now is basically as an experienced payment CEO taking on payments businesses that need to be um, either turned around or sorted or carved out or rescued and then uh, stabilizing them, building them forward so that they're in a position where we can grow them as a business or we can sell them uh, and put them into a better place. And mostly uh, what I prefer doing that is for PE and for private shareholders because it's a more dynamic, interesting, fast-paced um, space to operate and you know the next year two or three will throw up lots of opportunities in the payment space unfortunately some businesses will hit the wall but the good businesses will come through and i think there'll be an opportunity for people like myself to take on leadership roles in businesses like that and that's what that's what i enjoy doing and i certainly think i have another year business or two that i want to take on over the next five to ten years hopefully before i get to my retirement phase uh, if i'm lucky enough to keep going that long it's a really payments world is really interesting you know i stumbled into it but i'm really excited about what's going to happen over the next couple of years yes there'll be fallout but actually that's probably not a bad thing but the survivors will be really good and there'll be great businesses come through and so i'm looking forward to my next ceo role as one of these uh, leading a payments business internationally i'm based here in london at the moment but i'm internationally mobile across europe and anybody who's interested in contacting me can contact me on linkedin i'm pretty easy to find uh, or uh, off the back of this podcast, they can find my contact details. And so for me, it's around um, the next opportunity will be taking on a payments business in Europe, ideally for private equity, which probably has a turnaround or a, a distressed aspect to it and stabilizing it with my colleagues and putting it onto a growth platform and then either growing it forward or moving it onto a sale on behalf of PE. And what that does is it opens my network to new people, new experiences. Mm -hmm. I've been fortunate. I've worked in Ireland, the UK, the States, Spain, Germany, Luxembourg, uh, and I'm open to traveling again if the right opportunity arises. And that international experience, I think, is a huge part of my personal development as well. Yeah, thank you, Kevin. And I, I just uh, at, as we as we close off, are there any sort of uh, sort of last uh, last words or final words or words of wisdom, if you like, or golden nugget takeaways? Anything you want to just share before we close off? Yeah, well, firstly, thank you again for your your time and for inviting me onto the podcast. I think for anybody looking at what's going to happen in the payments world over the next two to three years, you know, it's going to come back to some basics. So fintech, remember the fin, which is the financial part of it, profitability, don't burn cash uh, without a runway in front of you, keep a uh, regulated, compliant business, and um, by all means, marry it with interesting technology. And there'll be some really interesting businesses come forward over the next couple of years. But it's going to bring us back, a bit, I think, a bit to basics, some of the aspirational and, to be honest, um difficult to understand business models will fall away and we will be left with really good businesses coming through and i'm excited to be part of that over the next couple of years kevin thank you very much that was a fascinating episode i really do appreciate 
your your wealth of uh, experience and, and and knowledge it's clear that you are a proper leader and you're a true C ceo and you have a presence about you which is which is i think gives people um especially people that you lead it gives them that comfort that they're in a safe pair of hands with a person that's been there done that understands the 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 complexities of of the space within within which you operate so thank you very very much Thank you for your contribution. My pleasure. Thank you, Dudley. Nice speaking with you today. Great. Thank you so much. I was going to close off and I'll catch up with you now. All right, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us for another episode of 100 Days and Beyond, uh, the podcast where we focus on those individuals that are heavily involved in mergers and acquisitions, especially on the integration sides um, of, of business. Once a business has been acquired, or in the process of being acquired, being offloaded or sold, we we actually learning as we go through these podcasts that there are so many different elements within the post-merger integration or post-acquisition integration space. Today we got um, uh, well, we had a, 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 a really brilliant example of someone who's a practitioner, but from a from from a leadership point of view. And when you look at these type of uh, people that have made it their life, their life's journey or life's purpose to take on a particular industry, what really stood out for me um, with, with, with Kevin is, is I think number one is, is his dedication to a specific industry, his understanding and, and, and I, I think his selection of a space that is incredibly uh, complex with regulation and uh, and also the complexity of of the types of investors, the types of people, and and also of a of an environment that's constantly changing, especially in our new world that we're moving into. Um, but in addition to that, is to to come with the regulatory, with with other types of experience, and also bringing teams together that will help fulfill strategy and also that whole quick decision making process. Um, loved it. Brilliant episode. Thank you very much again, Kevin. I think uh, if you want to join us on the next uh, episode, you're going to get to hear another a great uh, uh, um, example of post-merger or post-acquisition integration work. But I think Kevin is, is for me, the epitome of, of one of those true leaders out in the marketplace that have selected an industry and are taking the lead in that, in that space. Thank you very much. Join us again for uh, our podcast, 100 Days and Beyond, and have a super day, have a super week, and we'll chat to you again soon. Bye-bye.